0: My guest today is a dear friend and one of the wisest and most empathetic humans I know. How's that for escalating your expectations? He is a mediator. He's worked with LA gangs, with the Cuban government, and with struggling spouses and families. Ken Cloak founded an organization called Mediators Beyond Borders. It began with a rather fantastic imagination of Ken Cloak. He saw TV images of bombs dropping from B-52s, and he imagined not bombs— but tens of thousands of mediators dropping into Baghdad to work to build the skills and capacities that people needed to resolve conflicts in their own culturally unique and distinct ways. Ken has authored many books, but it was this one, Conflict in a Time of Crisis, Pandemic, Prejudice, Police, and Political Polarization, nicely done on the alliteration there, Ken, four Ps, that will anchor our conversation today. Together, we'll explore how mediation techniques and conflict resolution insights might be adapted in these troubling times of ours and how we might scale them. Many of you listening grapple every day with the impact of Ken's four Ps. You educate and advocate and spend much of your time talking with folks with whom you disagree. Each of us, of course, was forever changed by a global pandemic, a racial reckoning, and the complexity of many conflicts here at home, and around the world, many of you are engaged in the work externally, and you're also working within your organizations to build a culture in which your board and staff feel a true sense of belonging. As I speak today, we are months from a presidential election here in the United States, and wars in the Ukraine and in Israel weigh more heavily on us than we know. But we all know that crisis and conflict are ever present, and this conversation will always be relevant. Oh, one last thing. As leaders, you should know this. To be a great leader, something I know you all strive for, requires people who can listen, empower others, generate trust, build relationships, negotiate collaboratively, and resolve conflicts. Guess what? These are the core competencies of a mediator. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at JoanGary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Ken Cloak is a world-recognized mediator, dialogue facilitator, conflict resolution system designer, teacher, trainer, author, and public speaker. He has been a pioneer and leader in the field of mediation and conflict resolution for nearly four decades. He is also the co-founder of Mediators Beyond Borders, based in Washington, D.C., The organization supports individuals, organizations, communities, and governments around the world in building conflict resolution capacity and conflict literacy. Love that word. We need to talk about that. Focusing on underserved communities. My friend, Ken Cloak, thank you very much for joining me.
1: It's a total pleasure, Joan.
0: So I believe that listeners understand from my intro and from your CV, which is part of the show notes that you believe in the power of mediation down right into your kishkas.
1: For those of you who
0: don't know, that's Yiddish. It means in your gut. Tell me how you came to the power of mediation, low these many years ago.
1: Okay. Well, there are several ways that this reached my kishkas. And I would say the first came out of my experiences in the 1960s as a part of the civil rights movement, the support for the women's movement, the anti-war movement, support for gay and lesbian rights, support for all kinds of efforts to give people a sense of equality and dignity. And I believed in those values, but I found that it was difficult to create them on a large scale. We succeeded in many ways and fell short of success in other ways. But what I later discovered is that every single one of those values is present in the conflict resolution process. That is, everybody has an equal right to feel upset. Everybody has an equal right to want to be treated with respect and dignity. Everybody has a right to say what they think. And so what first occurred to me is that there is a far more principled way of engaging our differences of discovering what we disagree about than the way that we've gone about doing it. And so that was the first piece. The second piece was that I went through a very terrible divorce and realized that the law was not a place that was good for children or even for grown-ups who didn't care to be treated adversarially as though there was a single correct answer. And I was also a judge at the time. And so it was a part of my duty to do justice. But the only tool I had available to me was to decide either in favor of one side or the other side. And of course, I did that. But when you decide in favor of one side, you lose all of the information that says that actually there's some reason why the other side is here. There's some problem for them. And when do we ever get a chance to talk about that? The third was that I was, this is a little bizarre, I was chosen to be the first judge on people's court.
0: I know, no, no, that's not, really?
1: We we never discussed this in all of our conversations. Oh my gosh. uh, So it would have been Judge Cloak instead of Judge Wapner. So, we did the first program, which was a pilot. And there was a photographer and a woman who was an actress, and she wanted her photograph taken, and he took it, but she didn't like it and she refused to pay him. So, I said, I basically, without even knowing what I was doing, I mediated it and came up with a solution they both liked. Really, they loved it. And they fired me <laughs> because nobody lost. And they needed to have somebody lose to capture the drama of the one who lost. And so that was a kind of realization why does somebody have to lose in order for somebody else to win? And of course, the true answer is that they don't. It's possible for both people to win as long as what we're talking about is something in which there's some flexibility in defining what it is that people want. So if what you want, which is part of the problem in conflict is for the other side to go away, to admit that they were wrong, to simply disappear, to give up, to surrender, whatever that may happen to be. That's what I would call a relatively low level of solution. A higher level of solution is one in which you discover that how people feel is more important to them than what they want. And what they want to do is to feel as though they, their interests are respected and acknowledged, and people are trying to give them what it is that they really do want. Only it turns out that what they really want isn't always the same as what they're arguing about. So to put it in a slightly different way, there are multiple ways in which we come together as a diverse society. In the first place, we come together on the basis of being frightened of our differences. That's a kind of coming together, but it's a negative one. Frightened of differences and frightened of ambiguity and frightened of complexity means you're frightened of life. And so there's this higher order of engagement that we can participate in. And that is where we talk about our differences we exchange our views with one another. Let me describe it this way. There are three categories of questions I could ask everyone who's listening to this webinar. Three categories of questions. Category of question one, who is the oldest person on this call? Who's the youngest? Who's the tallest? Who's the shortest? Who lives the closest to Times Square? Who lives the furthest away? And notice there's a single correct answer to each of those questions, and that single correct answer can be arranged hierarchically from highest to lowest. So there's an oldest, there's a youngest, there's a tallest, there's a shortest. It doesn't matter so much which one you choose, but whatever it is that you choose, one is the best and all the others are lesser. Second category of question, how old are you? Where do you live? How tall are you? And now there's a single correct answer for each person. And those answers do not arrange themselves hierarchically. Each person is an individual. This kind of corresponds to what happens in the law. So the first we can think of is power-based questions because there's domination and hierarchy that become possible. There, stereotyping becomes possible. Bias, prejudice, all of those things. The second one is more about who each individual person is as an individual, but it's factually oriented. Here's the third category of question What issues are you facing at whatever age you are at? What does your height mean to you? What did it mean to you growing up? What do you love about where you live? What do you not love about where you live? And now there are multiple correct answers for each person. And those answers aren't fixed the, like the way that you're age is fixed, or your height is fixed. They're fluid, they're flexible, they're moving. And most of what happens in the world is like this. It's like this third category of question. So if we ask who's the tallest, who's the shortest, that makes a difference with question one, but it doesn't make a difference with questions two and three. Now what we want to know is, who are you?
0: Who are? Tell me about yourself.
1: Tell me about yourself exactly right.
0: And we don't ask those questions. We ask we the level one and the level two questions. I had a podcast guest on not so long ago who has a book out called how to work with almost anyone. And <laughs> he has these, he, he, he calls it the best possible relationship. And he calls in order to have the best possible relationship, because people don't leave jobs, they leave managers he describes what he calls a keystone conversation and there are a variety of different questions you can ask during that keystone conversation to actually build a relationship. And the one is just an interesting, it's just tell me about your name. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And we use it in onboarding on my team and it is, it is so revealing and so rich, but it's, it, it, it doesn't force you into some binary
1: yeah, the name is just a, a kind of a, a template for really describing who you are. Correct. Uh, here are some other deeper ones. Uh, I just wrote a book called The Magic in Mediation. It's coming out in next month. And there's a chapter called The Art of Asking Questions. But if we think, for example, about the conflicts that are taking place now between Ukrainians and Russians or... Israelis and Palestinians and people are dying for the in because of the inability to ask these questions. Here are some questions you might ask those people. Question 1, what life experiences have you had that have led you to feel so deeply and passionately about this issue? Another question. This is one of my favorites. What question would you most like the other person to ask you right now? Another question. What price have you paid for this conflict? What does it cost you? And now let's hear what it's cost the other person. And now we can begin to see a little something about who people are. It is so, and there, I've written 50 of those, 50, what I call 50 questions to ask in political arguments. And there are lots and lots of others that we can ask in relationships, because every question is a kind of suspension of belief, of knowledge, of what we know to be true about the world. And in that suspension, it becomes possible for people to step away from their dogmas, their the, the truths they know to be absolutely true, and just see that there's another human being there, and that sometimes reality is more complex than we think that it is, because people perceive it differently. So right. whose perception is correct and whose perceptions are wrong.
0: Well, diverse uh, diversity frightens us, complexity frightens us too, right?
1: Yes. Right. Yes, exactly.
0: But in fact, so, if, if we can embrace both of those things, then the world opens up in all kinds of ways that are lovely and surprising and enriching, right? And then that's what so many people that's what so many people miss. I wanted to ask you, there are different words, different phrases that you use, Ken mediation, conflict resolution. And I wonder, are there distinctions between these things that are worth us all understanding so that we have sort of a level playing field around definition?
1: Yeah. So there are ways of, lots of different ways of defining these things. I have my own ways.
0: Well, well you, so, you're the guest. So you get to, it gets to be, today it gets to be your way.
1: Power, right? <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Uh, So, mediation is often thought of as a third party process in which two people have a conflict with one another and they bring in somebody who is outside the problem. But more fundamentally, mediation is an operation that we perform on conflict in order to release people from its grip, from its kind of dark hypnotic power. When we get into conflict, our fight or flight reflex gets triggered and we act in ways that we would not act uh, if we were more in charge of what we were doing and able to think it through so the difficulty is this if we think of this on a global scale most of the conflicts that we are experiencing are us against them but the problem is there is no them that's a construct and so, what the mediator does is to simply remind people that there is what uh, a, a friend of mine who is a pretty well known author, William Urey, describes as the third side. There is a third side which is present everywhere. So, just in the nature of the universe, we have positive energy, we have negative energy, and we have something that's neutral. We have up and down and in between. We have the past and the future and the present. All of these are mediations, meaning they're a search for a kind of middle ground. But now if we talk about what is this middle ground that we're talking about, we can see that there are actually multiple middle grounds. So the first middle way or middle ground is kind of mutual trauma mutual destruction, mutual exhaustion, fighting together. And people who fight with one another recognize that they are united by their fight, by their conflict. There's a, what I think of as a middle, middle ground, which is compromise, settlement, where we reach some kind of equilibrium or stasis and each side wins something and and loses something. Right. But there is also a higher middle way, a higher middle ground, which is what happens when there is collaboration, when there is consensus, when there's a real, not just a settlement, but a resolution of the underlying reasons for the dispute. And it is also possible to imagine a kind of highest middle way where both people are able to transcend the underlying reasons that gave rise to the conflict inside themselves, in their relationships, in the systems and structures and cultures that created the conflict and keep it alive. And this highest middle way, the way of transformation and transcendence is the way out of conflict itself. So this takes us a little beyond mediation into what is called restorative justice. And that means the restoration of relationships to people who had lost them. This, of course, is much more difficult than compromise. Uh, It requires people to talk openly and honestly with people they don't trust about what's wrong in their relationship. And it requires them to look for synergies. So it requires what I call a higher order of skill.
0: So full disclosure, I am... I was certified as a mediator by Ken Cloak, and yeah. we talked about this idea that in, a, in, a, in some kind of conflict, I have a, let's say I'm in conflict with, let's say, Tom, and I have a truth, and Tom has a truth, and they are equally true for each of us. Yes. Right? And the compromise that you describe would mean I give something up in order to gain some middle ground. Tom gives something up. But what I think you're talking about, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I know, that there's a third truth. And that is what maybe what you're calling that third way, which is what is it about those two truths that are somehow aligned? And we're very, talking very abstractly here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it to life in a conflict I'm familiar with. And it's a, it's a much more sort of, it is the conflict that exists in our society or has existed around same-sex marriage. Yes. Right? My truth is that I am denied rights under the law to be legally married. Someone else's truth could be, the Bible tells me this is a sin. Maybe, I hope I'm doing this right, Ken. I mean, I know those two are right, right? And I don't think that we actually found that higher middle until we realized that there was a third lane here that both parties could actually embrace which is the values of love, of vows, commitment. These are things that are shared by both Joan and Tom, right? And believe that everyone should be entitled to live happily ever after with the person they love. And the truth was that my truth didn't actually resonate with Tom at all because Tom doesn't think about his marriage license as having rights at all. That's, that's, he thinks of it as the church and the, giving away in the the reception and you know sort of he, he he has rights he doesn't he takes for granted so he doesn't see marriage as an as a 1352 rights or whatever we calculated right but the third way was can't we all agree that everyone should be able to live live happily ever after with the person they love and it wasn't until we moved from rights to values that the public the the, the, the public numbers moved in our favor and led ultimately to the Supreme Court voting for same-sex marriage. But I do think it was about finding that higher middle ground. And I, I wonder if you agree with that as an example, if there's anything you'd add.
1: I absolutely agree with that as an example. It's a terrific example. The I wrote a piece about my experiences in the Southern Civil Rights Movement and one of the things that I wrote about at the end of it is that racism is not about race. It's about domination. It's about fear. It's about the idea that you're going to lose something because if somebody else gets ahead, you slip behind. It's a, it's about a suppression of values in favor of individual gain on the part of people who want to who believe that it's more important to get ahead than it is to get ahead together. Right. And so the uh, the point about values is very is incredibly important. Here's an example of how to think about it. There are three orders of values. The first order of values is the specific value that you uphold. The value of equality, the value of freedom of speech, the value of of marriage, the value of Whatever it may happen to be, respect, dignity, whatever. The second value or order of values is the value of having values. So you may have a different value, but you have a value. You have something that you are linking your life to in an aspirational way. And the third order of values is the point where the value ceases to exist as something independent, where you become. The thing that you believe in. Mm -hmm. So you can value education, but being educated is a kind of higher form of value. And at that point, it ceases being a value and it becomes something different. But here's an example of a way in which I used it in a political arena to achieve the same result. I was invited by an organization that was called Indivisible, which had small scale organizations around the country supporting Democratic candidates for president. And for Congress in the last presidential elections,
0: okay,
1: everybody was united in, as Democrats against Republicans. But as soon as the primaries began to pit Bernie Sanders against Elizabeth Warren against Joe Biden against Pete against you know etc., as soon as you said the word Bernie or Elizabeth or Joe or Pete, every all all conversation stopped. And the unity was broken so that people stopped being able to talk to one another, even about what they believed in, in relationship to Donald Trump or whoever the Republicans were. So they asked me to design a dialogue that would bring these, the leaders of these groups together. So here were the I designed the dialogue. It was very successful. But here are the first two questions. Question one, without mentioning the name of the candidate that you support, What values do you believe your candidate stands for? Question two, how could we use those values to improve the conversation we are about to have right now? And everything shifted and people began to talk to one another. So that's an example of how values can do it. In marriages, you can ask your spouse, your partner, whoever you are with, your children, your parents. What values would you like your relationship to exemplify? Right. And now we're having a different conversation about what are values. Only the thing about values is one person can value respect while another person values equality. And they're they're not contradictory. And the same is true with interests. So, what we do in mediation, this is back to your definitional question. Uh, it was a long time ago. Um, but the definition of mediation is it's a search for ways of satisfying both sides' interests. not just what not what their positions are, that's what they want. The interests are why they want it, why it matters. It's an them.
0: important distinction,
1: yeah. And that uh, leads us to values.
0: The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. We are having a conversation about conflict resolution and the power of mediation with Ken Cloak, who is a world-recognized mediator, dialogue facilitator. You just heard an example of that. Conflict resolution system designer, teacher, trainer, author, and public speaker, a pioneer in the field of mediation and conflict resolution for nearly four decades. Let me ask you this question. In this book that you have written, one of many mediation at a time of crisis, you indicate that you are a self-proclaimed advocate for what you call a conflict revolution. Hmm. I'd love for you to talk to us about what you mean by that and what a conflict revolution would make possible.
1: Sure. Over the last, my experience, 43 years of doing this work, I have found mediation to be incredibly successful, dialogue facilitation, working in organizations to help groups of people figure out how to talk to each other about their conflicts, working in communities, doing environmental mediations, public policy mediations. And what I have realized as a result of that is that the fundamental difficulties that we face in connection with solving large mid scale or small scale conflicts are essentially the same. We get triggered by other people's behaviors, by what other people say. And so the question is can we design conversations that allow us to shift in a different direction? And even if we do that, what's left? So here's if we ask the question, where are conflicts located? Okay located in three fundamental places. One, inside of each of us. Two, between us, relationally. Number three, systemically, culturally, environmentally. And so in organizations, for example, just very, very simply, if you call a meeting and you don't ask or invite people to come to the meeting who are concerned about what you're talking about, you are creating a conflict.
0: Indeed you That's the
1: systemic source of conflict, not only of ordinary conflict, but of chronic conflict. Relationships have chronic conflicts, individuals have chronic conflicts, and systems have chronic conflicts. So what con- conflict revolution stands for is the idea that we need to fundamentally change our whole attitude toward how we think about conflicts and how we process them. How we handle them. So, what do conflicts represent? One, they represent a lack of skill at being able to handle somebody else's behavior. Yes. They represent a problem that we haven't resolved in our own lives, some internal conflict between whether we should or we shouldn't, or whether we're good or bad or indifferent or whatever that can be externalized into those other relationships. And more fundamentally, we face conflicts that are systemic. If you put two siblings together and give them a piece of cake to divide, you will find those systemic conflicts arising. Because the conflict isn't about the cake. It's about the sibling rivalry. It's about the conversations they haven't had with one another about how they want to be treated. And not the oldest and biggest always first, but the smaller and younger also have a right to be able to be considered, and sometimes aren't. So what conflict revolution means is seeing that these conflicts that we experience are, the way I like to put it is, the sound made by the cracks in a system. That's all that they are. So if you're an organization, wouldn't you want to know where your conflicts are coming from? And if you're in a relationship, don't you want to know what those cracks in your system are so that you can address them and fix them so that you'll be happier? Uh, that
0: answers- I, I do. I, I, yes, I, I probably do, Ken. But I'm afraid of them. Yes. Right? I'm afraid of them. Yeah. I'm afraid to, to dive into what that conflict is because I don't yes. know if I have the right tools for diving. Exactly or i might i might not know what to do with what i learn
1: yes so let's say then that conflict is a lack of skill at being able to handle whatever might occur and a recognition that you were opening a can of worms <laughs> you may not know how to get them all back in the can again but maybe they don't want to go back in the can maybe you know maybe the they have are, to
0: bad the worms have to slither around for a while right
1: <laughs> yeah, so well, this is what I have been learning over the last 40 years of doing this work. If you come from a place of heart, if you come from a place of caring about real human beings, uh, if you come from a place of unconditional respect for people and a realization that beneath their conflicts is some underlying unresolved issue... Then what will happen is they will help you figure out what the skills are that you need in order to not be frightened and to realize that far from being frightened, you should be overjoyed at the sign of a conflict. Because what it means is you're getting close to something really important, something that could change your life.
0: I'm so intrigued by this and it reminds me i did some work a number of years ago with an organization that was boston based it had a different name at that time and it is now called and i saw you reference it somewhere called essential partners essential yeah. partners and essential what partners. right and what they do uh, and in fact i had their their ed from uh, that i worked with on a podcast long ago her name is prisa parsa and oh uh, yeah I think the skill that, so the skill, some people will talk about the skill that's missing is the ability to have difficult conversations. Like I don't have the tools. I don't have the soft skills to have difficult conversations. How is that connected? Where's the intersection of that with mediation and conflict resolution? Because I believe that people are fearful of walking into the waters of having a difficult conversation because they think they're gonna screw it up or make matters worse, or the other person is going to feel bad. And for nonprofit leaders, they like people to feel good. They're people pleasers.
1: Great question. And there are several answers. There's practical answers at the level of find somebody who does or who's willing to learn. Here's my answer to it. The difficulty is that none of this is entirely predictable there's an element of uncertainty and chance in every conversation that we have. And what we need to do is to recognize and show up for that uncertainty and that chance. Every conversation could go badly. And yet we engage in it because we learn out of the conversation how to make it go better next time. Yes. So what I do is I consecrate my mistakes to the benefit of the people who I will speak to next.
0: Tell me and consecrate meaning?
1: Meaning dedicate. I honor my, the, the mistake that I have made by admitting it, recognizing it, trying to correct it, and coming back and trying it again. I wrote a book many years ago called Mediating Dangerously. Yep. And there are two kinds of danger. First, there's the obvious kind that by entering into a conversation, you could make things worse. You could experience someone else's negative emotions, you could experience your own, the whole thing could go fall apart. But then there's a subtler form of danger, which is the danger of not ever engaging in the conversation at all because you're frightened. And for that reason, cheat someone out of the possibility of discovering that they don't have to be in this conflict at all. That's a deeper form of danger. And so for me, the times when I've kicked myself after a mediation session weren't the times when I said something that was in, you know, unskillful. There were the times when I didn't say anything and ought to have, when I didn't really know what to say And the point of it isn't that we always know what to say. The point of it is that we care enough about the people to want to try to relieve their suffering and are willing to risk making a mistake in order to open up the possibility that we could actually succeed.
0: I'm going to put myself out there a little bit and say that I hope that people who are listening understand that this conversation is. Also, a a key that can unlock an awful lot of doors around diversity, belonging, that you're going to have the conversation is important. And I'll tell you a quick story, Ken, that I was January 6th and my team is entirely remote and with a group of 14 people with diverse lived experience, et cetera. And I told her, I just went on to Slack and I told everybody, take a break and go put the TV on something really, there's something happening and we all need to be witness to it. And there was a lot of slacking going back and forth. And I was getting, as everybody was, right? Getting very, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And I immediately, without thinking... put into the general Slack channel, why are these people not being arrested? To which one of my team members, who was a woman of color, simply responded, because they are white. Within five seconds, I saw the Slack get deleted. And I went back and I said, I saw it. I'm so glad you wrote that. And I apologized, right? This to your point, like, That is one of the obvious answers here. Right. And it opened up a whole discussion. My team member at that time said, I deleted it because I have been in unsafe work environments where an answer like that would have gotten me fired. Not in an environment like this where the person apologized and we ended up talking about it as an entire team and what it meant for me to write that for her. You know, sort of the it became this teachable moment. It was not a flattering moment for me. I'm better for having scraped my knee in that way.
1: Yeah, exactly. You the, When you learn to ride a bicycle, you're going to fall down. You're not going to be able to succeed the first time around. You're going to make mistakes. But that's how we learn.
0: And I think and that so- that's right. And I think that that's, I guess, the point I was really making, Ken, is that this conversation is, it could be about presidential politics. It could be about uh I- israel and pakistan it could be about organizational conflict it could be about how to make create a culture of belonging in your organization they're all of a cloth
1: yeah and people are going at each other on college campuses today over israel and pakistan Stein. and and also india and pakistan and ukraine and russia and sudan and south sudan and all of those places around the world and the difficulty, I think, is that there is an assumption that says that one side it's possible for one side to win using military means in every one of those conflicts. But that isn't actually the case unless you include genocide as an option. So Israel is going nowhere. Palestine is going nowhere. Ukraine is going nowhere. Russia is going nowhere. And what we are missing in all of this is something that has become completely obvious in the last few days. We are talking about parents of children who are dying in these wars, and no parent wants their child to die in some war. That has nothing to do with that child or what that child's possibilities are. No parent wants that. And so it becomes possible for parents to come together to talk about their issues in a similar kind of way. Whose children is it okay for us to discriminate against and treat as inferior? And the answer should be no No ones. one's. Yeah. And then we come to a more sophisticated answer, which is what do you actually get from diversity? And the answer is improved problem solving. Yes, better solutions. There's a famous experiment that you can actually try, where you take a group of people and you give them you, you take a glass bowl and you fill it with M and M's or you know uh, marbles or whatever it is, and you ask people how many are in the glass bowl. And the closest to correct answer is nearly always the average. Of everyone's answers, because some people will go high, other people will go low. And in between, there is some of what is called the wisdom of crowds. And animals do this, they work in sync with one another in various ways to solve ecological problems. And we are now facing a series of problems in the world. That do not have single correct answers, that are complex. Yes. But we require our solutions that are at least as complex as the problems we're facing. Congratulations to you for what you did in that situation. That was absolutely perfect. I screwed this up. And now let's learn from this. Let's have a learning experience. Right. Turn this into something we can all look at and talk about.
0: You talked about the current focus of your work being, and I I I think I know the answer to this question, about the current focus of your work being about exploring the connections between small, internal, and interpersonal issues and the larger social and political conflicts that divide us. Is that what you were just talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. Here's another way of saying it. If we go back to the issue that you described of gay marriage, which was such a divisive issue in the United States and still is, if we think about this from a political point of view, we can then ask the question, what exactly is politics in relationship to these questions? And the first answer that we would have to give from an interest-based point of view, that is, if we were going to have a mediative approach to politics, we would say that politics is a form of social problem-solving. So, yeah, okay. so social problem solving, that's what we want to do. What exactly is the social problem
0: we're solving for?
1: Is? huh?
0: the social what is the social problem we're solving for?
1: Yes, yes, exactly right. So what is the social problem of people getting married who are gay or lesbian or bi or whatever they might happen to be? And what we can see is that the answer shows that it isn't actually about marriage at all or at least it isn't about gay and lesbian people getting married. It's about a whole series of other underlying issues that people have regarding religious belief, regarding what they believe is morally important for people to do. And then we have a choice about how we're going to handle those moral differences. And there are two fundamental choices, either I'm right and you're wrong, In which case, the only question is, what am I willing to do to make sure that I win? Right. Or the second is, these are really complex issues. No moral issue is easy. And so what we really need to do is to learn from one another and have conversations that allow us to explore the complexity of these issues. I think it's the same for abortion. Uh, And the group that you mentioned, Essential Partners, used to be called the Public Conversations Project. And they were the ones who organized the dialogues between spokespeople for pro-choice and pro-life organizations in Brookline, Massachusetts, after the murders that took place at an abortion clinic there. Yes,
0: that's exactly right. Public Conversations Project.
1: Yeah. So uh, the issue of abortion uh, is a similar issue in which there are complexities. Is anybody on the planet 100% pro-life? or 100% pro-choice? And the answer is there is some concern for life on the part of people who are pro-choice and some concern for choice on the part of people who are pro-life. Is there enough of that to make for a conversation? Right. Uh, and the answer is they essential partners, Public Conversations Project found out that there was, and they carried on dialogues between these spokespeople for decade, for over a decade. Nobody changed anybody's mind, but they stopped the violence. They stopped the killings.
0: And that's no small thing.
1: That's no small thing.
0: We are just about out of time. I, I want to encourage all of you to, I believe you have the website is kencloak.com, right? Yeah. And you will find access to the many, many resources and books that can just. He keeps having ideas, and he keeps writing so books. Cute. Just yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I want to leave you with this from the beginning of Ken's book, a Mediation in a Time of Crisis. He, he writes this. He says, we have entered an era of escalating conflicts and crises in which our survival as a civilization and as a species increasingly depend not on military prowess, economic might, or political dominance, but on our ability to listen empathetically, Communicate nonviolently, solve problems jointly, negotiate collaboratively, decide consensually, act collectively, and resolve conflicts meditatively. Mediation is a learned skill. You mm-hmm. can learn to do this. I know this because I learned this skill because I felt like I was practicing without a license. Um, <laughs> So I I encourage you to explore this avenue as a way to build and exercise these muscles that Ken speaks about here. I want to end with this comment and a question. You know, you use a phrase like our survival as a civilization, you know, depends on these things, right? And I I don't, I certainly don't disagree with you, but I, I... I am always struck in our conversations, Ken, by how hopeful your work makes mm-hmm. me feel, and and I just wanted to speak about. I wanted you to sort of leave us with why does this work that you do that you've done for forty years plus? You are hopeful, aren't you?
1: Very okay. So why, against all odds, uh, would I be right. hopeful? Right. I would say for 40 years, I have done thousands and thousands of mediations, facilitated hundreds and hundreds of dialogues, designed conflict resolution systems. In every, in every single conflict, every one of those thousands, nobody thought it was possible to do anything. People had given up hope. They believed that mediation would not be effective. Nobody could get the other person to agree to this. But by coming together and by opening a real conversation, not the one that's stuck, but the one that can't get stuck because it's about something different. It's about who you are and what you want in your life. It becomes possible for people in incredible circumstances to do something together. And I'm talking about conducting dialogues between Israelis and Palestinians between which I have done all of these I've done mediated and done dialogues between Ukrainians and Russians, Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, Sandinistas and supporters of the Contras in Nicaragua, etc., including Greek citizens and immigrants, a very hot issue in Athens. And these are dialogues involving hundreds of people on opposite sides. And in every single one of them, we find ways for people to actually recognize the other person as a human being. And that's where it starts. It's the recognition of the other as a human being. And that's what's missing if we think about it in terms of all the cases of discrimination and bias and prejudice and stereotyping. Where is the human being? Can we find the human being there? So this is a humanistic art. And it never looks possible at the beginning. So at every mediation, every single one, I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to succeed, except that I've succeeded so often that I know that it's a distinct possibility, and I've stopped <laughs> thinking about it.
0: And this is uh, the root, the sort of what anchors your hope, yes. is that is that you have... Done these things, had these conversations. And I think at, at at the root is you're really trying to unearth the humanity in yeah. each party. And that's finding it is pretty the search for it makes you pretty hopeful. Thank you, Ken Cloak. Please visit KenCloak.com. When is your the 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 latest book with the with the all the questions? When when do we get the questions, Ken?
1: Uh, it's called The Magic in Mediation, and it's 15 sources of magic. And it is a magical process, meaning you can't know in advance of any authentic conversation what exactly is going to happen. The point is to show up for it. The point is to be authentic and to be honest and to ask the honest questions in the hopes that you will figure out where it's going to go as it begins to move there. So yeah, this is, it should be out in uh, the magic and mediation should be out next month. And it's my, possibly my last book on conflict resolution. I'm not sure, but there's a a lot in it. That's technically useful. Another book that people might find useful is a book that I wrote several years ago called the crossroads of conflict.
0: Yes. I actually like that book very much. So that one, as well as his Ken's newest book, which would be in early, 2004. So be on the lookout for that as well. And I don't ever engage in a conversation with you, either with the microphone in front of me or not, in which I am not enriched and increasingly hopeful about the complexities of our world. So Ken Cloak, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Joan, for having the courage to be able to look at these issues and just the general courage that you bring to life in general. Really appreciated.
0: Thank you, Ken Cloak. And thank you to everybody who's listening today. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for taking time out to engage in some professional development, which is a form of self-care. Make no mistake. In that spirit, please take good care of yourselves. Thank you for all you do. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.